Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Christina Hoff Summers. And I'm Danielle Crittenden. And very excited this podcast to have truly a phenomenal Femsplainer in Sally Quinn. Washington royalty. Washington royalty, right? Princess? Princess. If you don't know who she is, shame on you. Google it. (laughs) Sally Quinn. Or we can tell you. We can save you time. Just by way of Fem Facts, she's a longtime journalist for the Washington Post, but began her career there as their party correspondent. She kind of invented the party, Washington official party coverage, when the style section was born in the Washington Post under legendary editor Ben Bradley. She covered parties like Jane Austen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, or Thackeray covered parties. Ben Bradley at the time was the editor. He was the, if you've seen the Post movie recently, Tom Hanks is him. He oversaw famously the paper through Watergate. And then she married him. He was almost 20-something years her senior. So inappropriate. So inappropriate. Um, Says the woman whose husband was, never mind, (laughs) older. But her descriptions of him as this kind of like uber man, right? Just brash and darling, no nonsense, but also kind of that crusty newsman kind of guy. And and frankly, a New England Brahmin. Right. Yes. He came from fancy family. Anyway, they got married and together they became the preeminent it couple of Washington parties. So any time between the 1970s, 1980s, through till he died. They were the center of Washington social life, official and private. Anybody you can think of or name came through their house or they were good friends with. And Sally continues that. And we'll talk to her about that too. She's written many novels and books. My favorite book of hers was called The Party. And it was a book I read when I first came to Washington. It was really an advice book about how to throw a party. And you give great parties. Oh, Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Try. I love parties, too. So we'll get her advice on that. She ran for 10 years a site on Washington Post called On Faith. She got very interested in a spiritual quest. She'd always called herself an atheist. She was very balky at anything that was organized. Our excuse for getting her on is a new book called Finding Magic, A Love Story, which is really a spiritual memoir. But it kind of while sort of writing a lot about her amazing marriage to Ben, also talks about this spiritual quest that she was on, trying every different religion, talking to everybody about different religions, but really discovering that her own religion is magic. It's less about Judaism and Christianity than about the occult, ghosts, psychics, palmistry, tarot cards, mediums. (laughs) And I found it completely charming. I found her beguiling. Well, it was certainly gripping. And she may be a witch. Well, we'll ask her about that. Okay. A good witch. The good witch Glinda. (laughs) What was fascinating about this is it was really her coming out as someone who believed in all of this in this memoir. Which was brave of her. All her friends told her, do not put the hexes that you cast on people who then died. Don't put that in the book. And she did. Well, it's brave, but also somebody of this kind of stature, who's a journalist who's married to... Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley, who would put up with no nonsense of any kind, test every theory six times, want it, multiple sources. She is a strong believer in astrology. And so part of the fun of the book is reading about this. Reading and, about it. You know that I had a friend in high school, brilliant girl, and a very good friend, and she could have gone to any college and done anything. Perfect SAT scores. Mimi Simos 
we went to the Renaissance Fair in Los Angeles and someone was reading tarot cards. And I was kind of interested, although they terrified me in the end. But she loved them. And then she became a leading witch. And some people have heard of her, Starhawk. She became the number one Wiccan. What, what does that mean, you become a leading witch? I don't know. She's a leading Wiccan. Wiccan is a thing. Well, people pay her to... I don't know. She goes to Stonehenge and does, I don't know, naked dancing or something. <laughs> no, well, Mimi, I, I didn't mean I, that. I kind of, I don't think we'll have time, but I, I'm kind of keen to ask Sally to read my palm, but I also don't want to know what's in my palm. I don't believe in, I'm afraid of it. I don't get medical tests. And I don't have my palm read because I don't want to bet. I don't want crazy news. Okay, well, let's bring on Sally. You sigh, a song begins. You speak, and I hear violins. It's magic. Well, the stars desert the skies and rush to nestle in your eyes. It's magic. Hey, Sally. Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm delighted to be here. Well, Sally, I read somewhere that when you interview people, the first question you ask is, if you could ask yourself any question, you were interviewing yourself, what would be the question? So my question to you is, what question would you ask yourself if you were interviewing yourself? (laughs) (laughs) The first question. (laughs) Well, I wrote this book, which was a spiritual memoir, and I also had a podcast or an interview show when I was doing a religion blog for the Washington Post. And at the end of my interview, I always ask people, what is to you is divine and what is the meaning of life for you? What gives your life meaning? So a short question at the end of an interview. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which then, of course, you go on for three hours. But the fact is that I always find it's important to find out from people what gives their lives meaning. And so many people have different answers. So what is your answer? Well, I think love. I mean, certainly the most important things in my life have been my love for my my mother and my father and my family, my husband and my son, Quinn, and now his new wife, Fabiola, and their daughter. But I can't imagine life without love. I can't, I can't imagine being happy without love. And when I think about the things that I care about. I mean, I certainly care about my work and writing, and I care about my country. I'm an army brat, and so I care deeply about my country. But finally, in the end, it's loving people and being loved in return. Part of your spiritual memoir, and I did like how you structured it that way, because you wove in all these very personal feelings with the sort of difficult relationship that you had with formal religion. And in fact, Early on, and for the longest time, you'd call yourself an atheist. But you sort of sought spiritual meaning in other practices like astrology and tarot cards and Ouija boards and meditation. Talk a little bit about that, because it's one of those things which you probably have not been able to really talk about as frankly as you have in this book, because in sort of polite society, it's not something that you, you know, you just meet skepticism and probably some sort of mockery. But It's very profound to you, and it has, you see it as a legitimate alternate. What Danielle's trying to ask is are you now, or have you ever been a witch? A witch. (laughs) (laughs) How 
did I know? <laughs> and, and I'll just go right ahead and ask it, you know. But she asked on and the way. Who was the, I, I, I don't want to get a hex Who was the we poli- woman politician who said, I am not a witch? <laughs> My friend Elsa Walsh said to me when, you know, when I was writing this book, she said, for God's sakes, do not say that you're a witch. <laughs> so, so are you I witch? don't. So I don't. But the thing is that I, you know, being an atheist all of my life, and I was, but I was probably more of an angry atheist than anything else. But I just, I just didn't believe. I just couldn't believe. And I kind of thought it was stupid to believe in God or whatever one wanted to call God. And John Meacham, who is a great friend of mine and to whom the book is dedicated, and he's a religion scholar, took me to lunch one day and he said, we had this big argument for three hours. He said, you're not an atheist. I said, yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And he said, look, being an atheist is being negative. That's a negative word. It means atheist. It means you're against theism. You don't believe in God and you're not a negative person. And besides, you don't know anything about religion. So if you're going to say you're an atheist, at least go out and read something. You know what you're talking about. And then you know what what you're you're against. So I did. He gave me a list of things to read. Well, it didn't make me, I didn't find Jesus immediately, but I did start thinking about the fact that there were a lot of interesting philosophical ideas about faith that I hadn't really considered, and that the fact was that I didn't know. So I couldn't really say I'm an atheist because that means that there's no God and, you know, rejecting the idea of God. The word agnostic means nothing to me because... Mm -hmm. We're all agnostics. Agnostics means you don't know. Nobody knows. The Pope doesn't know. He's an agnostic. So that word meant nothing to me. And then I read this wonderful book called A Religion of One's Own by Thomas More. And it basically, and of course, by this time, I had studied doing the website for eight years or nine years. I had studied all different world religions. I'd taken a trip around the world to study world religions. And there was something about each faith that appealed to me. And I sort of, you know, a lot of people who are of one certain faith really hate the idea of this cherry-picking religions. You know, you take one thing from one religion, (laughs) one thing from another. Well, I think everybody should build his or her own religion, his or her own faith. I mean, you can have a community, a faith community, but no one believes the same thing. If you put 3,000 people in a national cathedral or a mosque or a synagogue, everyone is going to have a different relationship with a higher being or a spiritual being or God or whatever he or she wants to call it. No one believes exactly the same thing. And I grew up as a child during World War II. I lived in Statesboro, Georgia with my Aunt Ruth and my mother and my brother and sister, and they were Scottish. And they they believed in the time travel and Scottish stones and psychic phenomenon, you know, palmistry and astrology and all this kind of thing. So that was really my first religion. And then the staff were, they all believed in voodoo. My aunt went to the president, organist at the Presbyterian Church, and the staff all went to the, the black Baptist church across town. And everybody believed, really, the voodoo thing and the astrology and the psychic phenomenon and all. We had ghosts in the house and, you know, all kinds of psychic. And my mother, my aunt Ruth was psychic. My mother's sister was. My mother... And to a certain extent, I am and my sister. And so this was not something that you were taught to believe. It was just something that you believed. I mean, I've had psychic experiences, so it's not something that somebody can tell me is true or not true. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I learned voodoo during that time because I watched it being practiced. And I learned astrology and palmistry and, and 
tarot and all of those things, Ouija boards. And so that was what is called embedded religion. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can be brought up as a Catholic and believe that you have to go to confession and you have to say your rosary. And if you sin, you're going to go burn in hell for eternity. And you may get to a point in your life where you don't actually believe it anymore, but it's still there inside you so that if you do something bad, there's a part of you that says, oh my God, I'm going to go to hell, you know. And so for me, all of those things were my embedded religion. And some parts of it work for me and some don't. I mean, I do believe in astrology and astrology has worked for me. Tarot, I love the tarot cards. I think they're beautiful and mystical and magical and So there are parts of the occult which are appealing to me and which work for me and other parts don't, the same way there are parts of Christianity. I mean, the message of Christianity is a fantastic message, and it is the greatest story ever told. I just don't happen to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I think Jesus was a great prophet. So, you know, I mean, and I've taken things from Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam that that means something to me, that are meaningful to me, and incorporated in Judaism and into my own personal faith. Give me an example of a personal encounter with the paranormal. or I mean, have you seen a ghost? Yes, I have, actually. Well, there were ghosts in the house in Statesboro, Georgia. We had this great plantation house with white columns and there was a long, a long, wide hallway that ran the length of the house upstairs and downstairs. And so the family lore was, these are the McDougals, that when somebody in the McDougal family died, that the ghosts would come and they would rattle their chains the night of the person and might died up and down the hallway. And I remember there was a terrible thunderstorm the night my Uncle Horace died. And the, we heard, um, I was so terrified, we heard chains rattling up and down the hall. On the Why did they have chains? Floor. But, but, you know, <laughs> the these were our ghosts and <laughs> And so, you know, I got in bed with my mother. I was trembling. And the next morning, my Aunt Ruth took us upstairs and said, you know, here are the chain marks on the floor. So, I mean, these are all, I was little. Right. But, you know, I've seen, a, I had a house until this past year. I sold Grey Gardens where there was a oh, ghost. Yeah, it was a famous I loved your stories about Island. Grey Gardens. Yeah. Yes. And Big Edie and Little Edie and... Yeah, the Beals. And there, there was a woman who had built the house, and she was a great gardener. And one night I was standing, and, uh, and, my, and several guests have seen this ghost. I, she just came into the bedroom and sort of floated around in her garden outfit and then left. But Barry Goldwater, who was a very close friend of my parents and lived with my parents toward the end of his Senate career, came up to visit from one, one weekend with them. And we, I put him in the room where the ghost is. So the next morning, I came downstairs in the kitchen, and Barry was lying on the sofa, asleep. And I said, what are you doing down here? And he said, there's a ghost up there, and I am not sleeping up there. I had to move him into another bedroom. No one had told him. No. But how, what does but the there ghost were look like? People. Like, how do you recognize it? How do you know it's this Well, have you seen Ghostbusters? <laughs> <laughs> Is that clear? <laughs> you know, you see this, this figure, and it has, you can see a face or something, but it's very blurry. And it doesn't have a sort of solid form. It just kind of just kind of shimmers and then leaves. Well, let me go back just a little. No, bit. I'm I don't not wanna, crazy. I don't want, by no, the way, I know. I don't want to get. I want to <laughs> stay on ghosts. But I just want to go back to something you were saying a little bit earlier, which will feed a little bit into this. I mean, I think what people find from formal religions is not so much what they have to believe, although obviously that's important, but more it's a code of behavior. 
people who don't want to think their way, entire right. way through morality Go- and moral behaviors. There's <laughs> there are good ghosts and they're bad ghosts, you know. Yeah. But no, but the no, point of religion is yes. If most, it's it's a way to know how to behave. You, you quote Karen Armstrong, the author. She said, "What mattered just most was not what you believed, but how you behaved." And so, when you talk about astrology and you talk about believing in these powers, where are the powers coming from, and how does this spiritual world give you a code of behavior? How does it teach you good? Well, you know, there are, there, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, you can't be a good person if you don't believe in God or if you're not religious. And, you know, when talking about all of these occult things, I mean, all religion is occult in the sense that it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Holy I Ghost. I mean, the whole idea of Jesus being the Son of God and walking on water and feeding the multitudes with one loaf of bread and raising people from the dead, and and then, of course, his own ascension up to heaven and all of that. That doesn't make any sense. That's that. And Catholics believe in transubstantiation, which is when they take communion. A lot of them believe that it be, actually becomes the blood and flesh of Christ. So all of these religions have things about them. Muhammad went up to heaven on a silver mm-hmm. steed that are not believable, but that are part of the lore. You know, I mean, but the there Jews, are centuries of like lessons and yes, the Jews, and, and the Talmud the Jews and leading, leading the, you know, their, Moses. Moses leading the Jews out of Egypt and all of that kind of thing, which never happened. So, I mean, there is this issue of faith. Something must have happened. No, but, no, something did happen, I'm right. sure, but it wasn't that. The content is not what's, because right. everything has crazy So you're, what you're asking me is, where do I get my moral values? Your moral bearings, yes, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't, I think that we're born with that, and, and certainly my parents taught us that. But I think that when you talk, I mean, Karen Armstrong has written books. She wrote a book about God, and, and she basically talks about how when religion started, the Axial Age, there were four different groups of religions that had no contact with each other. One, you know, a Far Eastern religion and then Middle Eastern religion and, and that would have had no way of contacting each other. So they would not know the philosophy behind their beliefs. That the beginning of religion was really about community and about surviving and about what works and how you treat each other. The golden rule, a version. So the version of the golden rule, each one of these four different societies came up with the golden rule on their own without any knowledge of the other three. Each one of them did. And it's because it works. It's the only stabilizing factor in society, in, in a community. Now, I can imagine Richard Dawkins being here and saying, yeah, that's not surprising. That's simply the evolutionary pressure in the communities evolved yeah. to be, you know, mutually sympathetic. And you know, well, I I've, think- I've interviewed Richard Dawson many times, and he's very funny because he's really su- he was very superstitious. Oh, he is, and he believes in ghosts. By the way, you, you did say he would he never step on a crack because it, it might break make his brother and mother's back. And, and, and Christopher Hitchens had superstitions. Oh, Christopher was very superstitious, and and Dawkins said he would never sleep in a haunted house because he believed in ghosts. So. <laughs> I guess this is what I'm asking because there are, I think, three times, to be precise, in the book that you actually cast hexes on people yes. who have crossed you. She regrets it. No, I know, I do, but but yeah. but, I'm not but they seem to have had some effect, including right. someone died, and your yeah. mother cast a hex on a doctor who mm-hmm. who then died. Where is that power coming from? If the hex, if you well, believe the hex was effective, 
Is it, as Christina says, are you a witch that has this power that can affect other people's lives? Or where's that, I guess, ultimately, where's that energy coming from? You know, the thing that's interesting is that, first of all, all of my friends told me to take that out of the book. <laughs> I thought it was very brave of you. <laughs> I thought it was very brave of me, too. Because, and very amusing. Because, yeah. Scary. I'm not done. But I mean, I thought, (laughs) you know, I thought I'm writing this book and I want it to be true. Yeah. What the hell? And this is this was the truth. And so I had seen I'd learned voodoo. I'd seen hexes and the hex when I placed the first hex and then the second and the third, I wanted the person to feel the same pain I did. I certainly did not expect them to die, you know. <laughs> I mean, and so I, you know, I mean, it's it's like wishing somebody ill. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many the times if, if somebody, you know, I mean, if you're if you're a Jew and you're in, in World War II in a concentration camp, you might wish the Nazi guards get killed or die. You're well, wishing- but you, you, you hex someone for a grandly vicious profile. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. it's a little different from being right. in the concentration camp. No, 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 camp. but what I'm saying is that, you know, Everybody wishes somebody ill right. at some point. You know, you don't right. want something good to happen to some bad people. Why do good things happen to bad people? You don't want it to happen. And so in, in the cases of these, I mean, it was you want the to first... describe one of them? Well, yeah. I mean, people know what we're talking well, about. Well, yes. I mean, the first one was this beautiful girl who came on to my boyfriend and he was responding. And I, so I put a hex on her because I thought he was going to run off with her and... But the hex was that I wanted her to disappear. I wanted her to move out of town. You know? Did you have a doll? With, did you have a needle? No, I, don't, I no? don't use dolls with pens. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, and unfortunately, she committed suicide. And I was devastated. And, of course, I couldn't tell him because, and I didn't believe that I was responsible for it, but I still felt really bad. And then this editor of New York Magazine, Clay Felker, commissioned a profile of me. And it was the most vicious hatchet job you have ever read in your entire mm-hmm. life. Vicious. And so I, I put a hex on him. But I wanted him, I mean, what I want, I guess I wanted him to feel the same kind of pain and humiliation that I had felt. Maybe have somebody write something bad about him. Mm-hmm. Or for the girl, I just wish she would move what, away. What, and Tell them what happened to Clay. Well, he's also one of the great, aside from this. Yeah, he's one of the great, great editors. editors. Yeah. yeah. And it had tried to hire me many right. times. And I think he was annoyed that I had refused to leave the Washington Post and stayed with Ben. So he, his magazine was bought out from underneath him and he was fired and sort of never really regained his standing again professionally, never really had a magazine, never ended up teaching in California. And then he got cancer and died. But that was not right away. So then I, I felt really nervous about it. And my brother, who is a theosophist and an astrologer and all that, he also has a PhD in religion from the University of Chicago and studied under Martin Marty and Eliade and all the greats. Oh. And he's also a lawyer and a practicing Buddhist. And he said, you know, you got to knock this off. <laughs> this is not good. And I said, but, I, you know, I'm not responsible for this. I had just said I put a hex on them. And I never believed that I was responsible. Have, so, you put, have you put hexes on people who didn't die? I've only done three. Oh, my life. goodness. And okay. wh- what do you say? And so the third one was this yeah. astrologer who I had gotten a job at the Post doing astrology columns for politicians, which was a big hit in the mm-hmm. beginning. It was quite fun. And then it became clear that she had her own political views, and she was skewing the charts toward her own political views. And 
we all agreed that it wasn't working, and I had to tell her that they were going to let the column go, and she was furious, and then wouldn't speak to me, and then called me when Quinn, my son, was born, and he was born with a heart defect, and she said she wanted to do a free reading for him, and she just absolutely said his life was going to be a disaster, and he was going to be retarded, and he was going to be sick forever, and he would have no life, and it was just Horrible. And I knew that she was trying to pay me back. I mean, I just knew. She was a sort of gypsy, you know. Her name was Svetlana. She was Russian, and she wore scarves and hoop earrings and, you know, had beads, hanging beads all over her apartment. And, you know, she was a real character. But it was just so mean what she did, because I'd been in the hospital with Quinn for months, and he'd had heart surgery, and I just... I was just undone by it until I realized what she was doing, but it still scared me, so I put a hex on her. I just wanted her to feel bad, and then she dropped out of a heart attack. Well, didn't, and, and, and so, didn't so, all right. your friends, some of your friends tell you, your husband, uh-huh. sort of a no-nonsense, and they say, look, Sally, it's not your fault. Oh, it's yeah, you know, I mean, but I knew, but, but I mean, my brother called me up and said, okay, that's it. I, but I was that. so terrified then that I just thought, I'm never going to do this again. How do you put a hat and, on someone? Well, I'm, I don't give away my secrets. <laughs> but is it like, you don't have to say, but is it like a, a chant or do you have? I, I just have my own way, but I don't talk about it because I don't want to give no anybody No chance, ideas. we it's, could just have It's like, no, no, because it's like telling people how to make a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, my, my but, roommate... but here's what I believe. And, you know, I've, when I've given lectures and talked about my book over and over to large groups of people, and everybody wants to know about the hexes. And I, then I will say, how many people in this room believe that I was responsible for the deaths of these three people? And nobody ever raises their hand. And I don't believe it either. I wouldn't raise my hand, but I might privately thinking, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, well, you know, I, I don't believe I was. No, I and, and I, you know, I don't really believe it. But I think that, that we all have certain powers that we're not aware of. And I think, like, for instance, some people are really psychic and some are not. And what I think is that it's just a matter of you have higher antenna than other people so that you're just picking up things. And I think you can learn to be more psychic. And I think at some point, you know, you, you, when you look at these scientists and your people who are studying artificial intelligence and all of that, they all say, I mean, and you can see people who are paraplegic who can look at a machine and blink or something and make the machine do what they want it to do just by thinking that at some point we're all going to... I mean, if 100 years ago, no one would have believed in the internet or mm-hmm. radio or... That seems like magic to me. The internet is still... I still can't figure it out. But my so, dog knows that someone's coming home long so, before they come. I mean, she... So the dog... So, I, I mean, I, I mean, the horror of all of this is at some point, you know, we won't need to talk. We'll know what the other person's thinking. And then it's going to be a real nightmare. You know, I, I once because thought, you'll say, "Oh, don't you look wonderful tonight?" And of course, not. they'll know. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that's. No, I think I think that's, you could be driven crazy if you ever if were you, able to read other. Oh no, you thoughts. couldn't. Oh, she looks tired. Even just yeah. something as small as that, right. would be devastating. Right. Oh, gee, you know, how could not, she ever wear weight. that dress? Yeah. Everyone's thinking. thinking. When we walk hand in hand, the world becomes a wonderland. It's magic. Well, how else can I explain those rainbows when there is no rain? It's magic. This is the Femsplainers, and we're interviewing Sally Quinn, the author of Finding Magic. I think that we all have certain powers, and 
for me, you know, you ask what, what I believe in now. So astrology works for me, but I, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe in prognostications, although I do think that there are some people who can see, who have sort of antenna that can see into the future. But for me, astrology is more about looking at your chart and looking at your personality, reading your personality. I mean, you said you were a Libra, Christina. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you a lot about Libras right now. I mean, I'm not an astrologer, but when I used to do profiles for the Washington Post, I would always look up the chart of the person I was going to do an interview with. And, you know, and then people would later say, you know, God, how did you get them to talk? How did you get them to say the things that they did? I, I didn't tell people then I looked up their charts because they'd think I was a nutcase. But it worked for me, you know, and I think you have to, I mean, there is this thing about the power of positive thinking. You don't want to take it too far because you don't want to be unrealistic. But I think if you think positively, I try to, instead of putting bad hexes on people now, because <laughs> I'll never do it again in my life ever. And believe me, people have begged me to put hexes on people. You're not a hex for hire. No. <laughs> But I put good spells on people. You know, I will hope and wish my friends well and hope that things happen, things that are happening will will happen for the best for them. And, you know, for myself as well. I mean, I just think positively. I do meditate every day. I think that helps. I think positively. I look forward in the future. I, I do telepathy and I don't you know, whether it works, but sometimes I'll just say to somebody, I, you know, I was thinking about you yesterday and they said, I felt that or I'll think that something good is going to happen. And I just, I just assume that good things are going to happen. And I don't know whether it works or not, but for me, it's very calming. I, I meditate a lot. I have a labyrinth in the country that I walk on. I go sometimes for silent retreats at this monastery where I just I need to be silent for a while and think about things. And I think that being silent and really focusing on the things that are important in one's life and do unto others as you would have others do unto you, I really try to live that way. And I think that in all of this kind of spirituality, all of the things that I'm talking about, there's always some goodness that they're grounded in. I mean, whether it's astrology or tarot or, you know, there's always good and evil. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, these are the evils. And so I, I mean, I try to be as good a person as I possibly can. And that works better for me than not being a good person, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's, maybe it's selfish to try to be a good person because I believe that what you put out, you get back threefold, which is one of the reasons I would never do another hex. Because you get, it comes back at you threefold, and I don't want that as the law of threefold. But so I think of the more goodwill I can put out and the more nice things I can do for people and the the better I can make people feel about themselves, it will come back at me threefold, and it works for me. Well, let me ask you about your husband, Ben, because he was as hard a newsman Mm -hmm. as one can ever even imagine. What did he think of this side of you, the astrology. Well, but he didn't believe any of it. Yeah. <laughs> and he thought it was all nonsense. But my astrologer I've had for 40 years, who's completely brilliant, and she's a philosopher, and she's got a PhD, and she's a literature scholar and religion scholar. And I mean, she's extraordinary. And she actually happened to be the sister of my husband's stepdaughters. Did she advise Nancy Reagan? No, she was no, not. That was, that was somebody in California. Oh, okay. 
she lives here, Caroline Casey, and she's extraordinary. And so when you go to Caroline, you get this two-hour sort of literary experience <laughs> and philosophical and religious experience. But And so Ben knew her because she was part of the family. She had married into Ben's family. And so I would go see Caroline, and I'd spend two hours, and I'd come back, and I'd say, I'm going to see Caroline. Ben would go, ugh. You know, and I'd come back and he'd say, what did she say about me? (laughs) (laughs) It's like that joke about the physicist Niels Bohr, this brilliant analytical scientist, Uh and suddenly he had a horseshoe, you know, for good Uh luck on his door. And his friend said, what are you doing? You're a man of science and you have a horseshoe on your door. And he said, well, I'm told it brings you good luck, whether you believe it or not. (laughs) And that's sort of been my... Well, I mean, look at at how many people will care. I mean, look at me. I've got... No, All, seen the okay. Necklaces. You've got a okay. I've got a. I've got a. Yes, I've got a Ganesh here, and I've got an evil eye here. I'm totally protected, and you know, <laughs> a, a labyrinth here. So if a bullet is going to come at you, it's going to bounce off one of the right. Yeah, but so these are all my good luck charms, and, uh, amulets, and talismans, and she's and, a witch. Uh, we've we told you. I feel <laughs> totally pro- well, protected. But so then, Ben, you know, so the hex thing. When I was telling and told him about the hex thing, I wasn't with him for the first hex, he thought it was hysterically funny, you know, because, I mean, he didn't think it was funny what had happened to the people, but he thought that it was absurd. But after the third hex, he sometimes looked a little nervous about me, you know, <laughs> you know he'd say, you're right, well, I think it's Whatever totally say, ridiculous, right. but he was a little more respectful, <laughs> but he never believed any of it. He thought it was completely I think ridiculous. it might be good for a marriage that at some point, the husband suspects you might be a witch. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, Darren. <laughs> Let me change course a little bit. You wrote in your book, hypocrisy was one of the most repulsive aspects that lend themselves to religion, and no place lends itself more to hypocrisy than Washington, D.C. Oh, yes. Let's talk about the social scene. Uh, so, so yeah. you hear that people, the elites, people in Washington, they do things because they want to go to Georgetown cocktail parties and they sell out their principles just to go to a Georgetown cocktail party. But these parties really don't anymore exist. Maybe they do. Well, maybe we're just not We haven't been invited. (laughs) But tell us a little bit. I mean, you were sort of through the golden age of cocktail parties in Washington when both sides, Democrats and Republicans mingled. Senators would come to dinner and get drunk. Everybody got drunk, I guess. How does Washington social life feel today as compared to them? Well, I had to laugh when I was reading about the new chief justice to be Kavanaugh, and they were talking to one of his liberal friends, and the friend was describing him, and he said, you know, he's just a guy who wants to stay home and watch football games and drink a beer, you know. He has no interest in the Georgetown cocktail party circuit, you know. And I thought, out of a bottle. Well, you know, how would he know? Because, you know, but the person who was saying it, probably didn't even know what he was talking about anyway, because, I mean, there are cocktail parties all over Washington, mostly book parties now. Well, that's the thing. It seems to become almost very commercial. Like, almost all of the things that I go rarest. to are official on some right. level. They're either book parties or they're... Corporate-sponsored. Corporate-sponsored, and they're, the Atlantic magazine will have something, and somebody right. else on some organization will have something or whatever. But there are very few... This private world where people right, it, yes, and I and when I first started in Washington, it was at the Post. It was will be fifty years next June. I covered parties, and I was out every night and every night. And well, as I said, Barry Goldwater was one of my parents' closest friends, so I knew all the 
Republicans and all the Democrats, and they were all together, and they would all mm-hmm. be friends. Barry loved Jack Kennedy. They loved each other. They all had friends on both sides of the aisle. They and humanized one another. They yeah. Couldn't. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that nobody lives here anymore. They, you know, they right. they fly in on Monday and fly out live on Thursday, and they live in their offices. Well, and they're constantly fundraising, too, which is and another— And they're fundraising all the time, which is right. just a total nightmare. I can't imagine anybody wanting to be in the Senate of the House and— they spend their whole lives asking for money. So their families usually don't live here now. But in those days, the families lived here. So they knew each other. Kids went to school together. You know, they went to the same churches and synagogues. They went out at night. And everybody was very friendly. It was kind of like the five o'clock whistle would go off on the hill and they'd all go into each other's offices and have a drink. And that just doesn't happen anymore. And the other thing is that so many of the parties were hosted by prominent, usually prominent men and their wives, the Georgetown hostesses, except for Catherine Graham, you know, who was her own powerhouse. You're and, saying the woman was prominent because of her husband. Well, yeah, and yeah. but but she could make her mark by being a hostess and right. by gathering powerful men and powerful people around her. In those days, it was mostly men. And so that was one of the ways that, because they didn't work. A lot of those women didn't work in those days. So this is what they did. And so this was how they they convened people, and a lot of important things happened in those days. Right, it was an important job. We shouldn't dismiss. Well, that's this right. As, it was as, not, as, I know you wouldn't. And I mean, a fun job. Well, I would look, like to have if, had that job. If you know, I went last night. I went last night to the French embassy for the Bastille Day party, and then I went on to the Portuguese embassy. Both of them were working events, and people were there. Were meeting. They were doing business with each other. They were. It's face-to-face, you know, and I mean, I believe very strongly in personal connections. Mm-hmm. I went to a, a book party that Joanna Breyer, uh, for, for Joanna Breyer, Justice Breyer's wife, last week, and there were five Supreme Court justices there. And I had never met Clarence Thomas, and I'd met John Roberts once. I'd not met Gorsuch. So I went over and started talking to them, but they didn't know anybody. There was what you would call the Georgetown party circuit, right? Right. And so they were kind of standing alone. So I went over and started talking to them, and I had a delightful conversation for half an hour with Clarence Thomas, who I'd never met in my life all these years. And I had a great fun conversation with Chief Justice Roberts. And and I, I think that everybody is surprised when you actually see, oh, that person's a human being. And we don't have that anymore. There's no, I mean, I have parties all the time. I invite people from both sides of the aisle. The Republicans never come. That's never really come. interesting. I invite them all the time. I mean, every single party I have. You know, I always think, isn't that too bad? Because I think it would be good for everybody to sit down and learn about each other. And that be, they must live in fear that a reporter will say, yeah, they attended a Georgetown Cocktail party. Right. I live in Georgetown, I should say. Yeah. And I do, I, I entertain quite a bit. I mean, I have large parties. I mean, I, I, I'll have dinner parties. I don't have big book parties, but I'll have like a dinner party for 48 people for a friend who's written a book because I like seated dinners because I think then people really have a chance to talk to each other, you know. And so a lot of these book parties, it's a flyby, you know. It's what my they, mother calls the garden sprinkler effect where your head yeah. bobs from side to side looking for the next person to talk to and right. not being able to talk to the person. In right. Front. I mean, I when I went to the French embassy last night, I had to go on. So I walked in the door. I said hi to a few friends. There are like five rooms at the embassy, and you can see people spread out. And 
we talked for a few minutes and we both said, okay, let's just make a swing through the house, you know. So one friend went that way and I went that way, sort of doing a swing through to see who was there, say hello, you know, you know. But you don't ever really have a real conversation at those parties. And I, I don't find them very fulfilling. But... What, what is the, this is a little off message, but what is the key to a successful party? You wrote a book about it, which I greatly enjoyed. Which is a, for one of the first books I read when I came to Washington. It sits with my cookbooks. It's like a little Bible. Mm-hmm. Of and advice. she gives great parties, I must <laughs> say. Well, obviously the people. Not enough. You could have great people, but I think if you don't have... Well, you know, yeah, you, you, there's you, great people at these official parties, but nobody... Well, yeah, has, but you need, I think what? you need a small space and no. a lot of booze. Well, yeah. Th- Maybe you not. You can have great people, but if you have great people, and but you have a sprinkling of great people and then a whole bunch of people that nobody knows, it just doesn't quite work. You have to have enough people that know, who know each other to have it. To have fun. I mean, it's great. The idea of... You know, I remember once... We had a New Year's Eve party, and we usually had about 150 people. And my husband met this couple that he thought were really nice. I just can't remember who they were, but it may have been a new ambassador and his wife who had just hit town. Ben said, we should invite them. And I said, well, I think it would be better to have them in a smaller gathering because they won't know a soul in the room. And, and he said, no, 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 I really want to invite them. And so what happened was that Ben literally stayed with them all night long mm-hmm. because they didn't know anybody. And so he was trying to sort of take them around, and people would have a quick conversation, then they'd move on. And so I think you've got to have a body of people who know each other. I have a group of regulars who I know are really good party people and mix well and go up and they introduce themselves to people. Make the effort. And they make an effort. And I I expect people to make an effort when they come to my house and not just stand in the corner and stare at everybody. But I also think that the host or hostess makes a big difference. I love to have people come to my house. And I want, when people leave my house, I want them to just sort of float out of there, just feeling totally admired and respected and having had a wonderful time and just feeling as though they had died and gone to heaven. Which is unusual in Washington. But that's what I want. I want them all to sort of leave feeling illuminated in some way, elevated in some way. And so I make a huge effort with seating. Quinn, my son, calls it mom Sudoku. <laughs> because I really work hard to try to make sure that people will sit next to somebody that they have a, they'll enjoy and they'll have a good conversation you, with. You've gone against that rule that you got in such trouble with when you, I think it was in the party book that you wrote, my rule is interesting person, dog, interesting person. That wasn't my rule. That was Kay Graham's rule. Oh, okay, okay. But you, you reported it, and then somebody, I think... And now, well, what happened was she, Kay said to me, you know, yeah. look, because she, she would have all these official parties, yeah. and like once she had, you know, the Japanese prime minister or somebody, and she, so there was a whole delegation of Japanese, and a lot of them didn't speak English. So she put me next to somebody really great on one side and one of these guys who didn't speak English <laughs> on the other side. And she said, Sally, you know, my, my rule for you is I'll give you one good person and one dog because you're going to have to do your duty. <laughs> so one night she was having a dinner and I was sitting at the table with Don Graham. It was for a bunch of advertisers and I was sitting next to these That was her guys. son, former publisher. Yeah, the- Don Graham, her, her, who was the publisher, Kay's son. It was slow going, and I was trying to be very chatsy, and I said, well, you know, Kay has this formula for me, and she says that, you know, (laughs) she said, I'll always put you next to one great person and one dog, (laughs) so both of these guys on either side, their faces filled because, of course, neither one of them knew. Who was the dog? One was the dog, and I thought Don was going to kill me. (laughs) 
please join the Femsplainers. Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us at Femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainer. I try not to have people who are no fun. I don't invite people I don't like. I don't invite people who are not nice unless I have to. I mean, What's unless... that great Washington line, the, the great hostess whose name's going to leap out of my head? Alice Roosevelt, Alice who said, if you have nothing nice to say, sit, sit next to me. me. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I, you know, and so when, when people get together at my house, they look around the room and... I always want people to sort of, yes, and you're right, I think people should be in a space that's a little bit too small. A little too small. As Meg Greenfield said, butt to butt and belly to belly, because yeah. you just... You, and a little you know, overserved, a little overserved. Yeah, and you, yeah, and you know that if people are together and, you know, you, you have a house and it's got three big rooms, everybody will end up in one room. They're not going to be... It's usually, the, weirdly, the kitchen, unless you... Yeah, it might be the kitchen. Yeah. Which I try to avoid that, but it is the Yeah, but, but people want to be together, and yeah. I make sure that everybody has plenty to drink if they want to. And happily now with Uber and Lyft. That's, that's been a not, great improvement. Remember the, trying to, people trying to get cabs home when there was oh, no when Uber in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. yeah, and friends don't let friends drive drunk and all that. Well, that doesn't happen anymore, so mm -hmm. that, that makes a big difference. Okay, so mix of people, but with a big body who knows each other. Yeah. Smaller space. I remember I, I actually did not look up your book of the party before coming on because I just, it's in, embedded. It's in embedded my head. in her yeah. brain. I remember you said that you have to have more candles in a Catholic church. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do that. You yeah, have more. Candle, everybody looks great but, in candlelight. But also the atmosphere. People yeah, people like don't, it. Well, but people often don't, giving parties, they don't think about, you start with your premise of friendship and uh -huh. you want everyone to have a good time. Not a lot of people do that. Second thing, creating the party atmosphere mm -hmm. is key so that when people so come in the door. At, yeah, the lighting, I use pink light bulbs. I only I, use pink light bulbs, and people denigrate me. My, my husband, room. like, said, what are you doing? I know. He wanted to get these Bright, energy efficient. No, no, no. I said, <laughs> you know, the, 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 little, the little coils. Never. Okay, this will, And even my son forget, in his New York you know, apartment, I'm telling him, get rid of this. You know, yeah. I don't care. They can complain. No, pink light bulb, because everyone looks good, and it looks like, it's candlelight, it's 19th soft. century and candles, and reverie. my living room is painted a rose color, which I mix. It took me a whole week to Wait a minute. Up. When did you paint it rose? When I moved in the house. It's uh, 36 years ago. Oh, because I tried to paint a whole suite of rooms rose, and I got a lot of pushback from my husband. No, it's a, it's a deep rose. I mean, it's not pink. But when I have parties, men will come up to me and say, Oh, all the women look so beautiful tonight. Yes. Well, of course, they look flushed. You know, there's this yeah. wonderful blush. But I also think that a lot depends on the hostess and host. I mean, Ben and I loved, and by the way, he was a Washington host. I have never once in all the years we were together heard Ben defined as a Washington host ever. Yeah. Editor of the Washington Post, blah, blah, right. blah. I continue, even in my own newspaper, to be defined as acclaimed hostess as opposed to writer, journalist, mm -hmm. whatever, you know. I'm acclaimed hostess. No one ever called him a host. Talk about feminism. <laughs> yeah, we have to get to that. Right. We have to get to But we were both always happy to see our guests, always mm -hmm. up for the party, wanting to make sure everybody had a good time, wanting to make sure nobody got left out, wanting to make sure that 
I always introduce people. I know the Brits always think it's such so rude to say, what do you do when you ask that question? But I always, when I introduce somebody, will say, you know, this is Jean, and she works at the such and such, and this is Joe, and he blah, blah, blah. And then they'll say, oh, my God, do you know so-and-so? Or, oh, I didn't know, you know, so that you immediately have some context. And it gives context, yeah. Right. And being an editor is like being a great party host. That, yeah. that if you're a great editor, you, and I remember when you talked about his founding of the style section, and that's where you mm-hmm. started, that you want to create all these, any good publication has that sense of mm-hmm. a party, of mm-hmm. different people, different right. personalities, right. different voices, but somehow yeah. all coming together. Yeah. And I can see that, yeah. and, and a host is work, and a hostess yeah. is work, and people don't make that effort to introduce others. Like you kind of just right. let people in and every man for himself. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to put out a, a note of advice to guests. Make an effort. <laughs> Make an effort. As people a guest, are shy. they're yeah. shy, but you have a responsibility right. to be interesting and to go talk to somebody who's not talking to anyone. Just yeah. do that and... I well, promise it does you. make a difference. Makes but, I mean, it also makes a difference if you've got a room full of really nice people. Right. That's uh, hard know, to convene in Washington. Well, no. I mean, the <laughs> thing is that there are a lot of great people in Washington. And, you know, I mean, everybody here is ambitious, right? Right. And so there are an awful lot of people who are on the make. And there are a lot of phonies here. And there are a lot of hypocrites here. But there are also a lot of great people. And, you know, you can smell them a mile away, mm-hmm. you know. And I just know who I like. And I don't invite people because of their power. If somebody who is in a position of power is somebody I like, I'll invite them. If I don't like them, I won't have them. Because why would you want to have somebody you didn't like at your party? How has that worked out for you with the Trump administration? Yeah, if Melania, what do you make of Melania? And I mean, what does anybody make of Melania? I don't know. She's I, I mean, She's the, the, the greatest She's mystery of all to me of all. was the coat. The coat. Oh, the, the recent coat. coat? Yes, the with the. I don't, I don't care. care. Do I don't care. I didn't know what to. I couldn't. I, I couldn't don't. I don't discern. really care. Do you? Yeah. All I could think about was that that was some cry for help. <laughs> really, I. I mean, it just seems so completely bizarre. So bizarre and, and, and inappropriate. And you know, and her staff was saying, "Well, why doesn't the press focus on her? What she was doing instead of." The, are you kidding? That's I mean, a she, message. Okay, if she'd worn a, dra- a coat with a swastika on it, would somebody have mentioned it? Right. You know, I mean, or a cross, you know, right. with Jesus on it. That was a message. It was some right. kind of a message, but who knows what, it, you know, it was kind of like when the president tweeted, Kafefe. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> I don't know what that meant, you know, I don't, but, but, it, it, but I think this was just complete. And of course, everybody has all of their, everybody. Have, have you met Donald Trump? I met him not since he's been president. I met him years ago because my stepson worked for him for seven years. That's he was right. his personal assistant. Oh, and so Tina Brown. Tina Brown said he used to be like funny and. We irreverent. met him a number of times in New York during that time. Has he changed? What is your perception well, between I, then and now? I, you don't know. I, I just don't know. I mean, because I, he was a liberal Democrat then, mm-hmm. so I don't know how this happened. Has no. the administration? had any noticeable effect on the Washington social life from your perspective? Well, yeah, because in, in uh, every other administration, there were people from the White House and the administration who were invited to various parties, and they're not now. The only time I ever see anyone from the administration is at an embassy party, mm-hmm. and the embassies have to invite people. But it's, you're saying 
people aren't inviting them. No, they're not. You talked about once how essential the establishment and making friends of Mm -hmm. the Washington establishment is to any incoming administration. And this is obviously a presidency that scoffs Right. That, that doesn't want anything to do with the establishment. Right. Does does that hurt them, do you think? Like, You know, I mean, it, it was interesting with the Obamas because the Obamas had nothing to do with Washington. Nothing for eight years. Did they go to parties? Never. Oh, really? Never, ever, ever. And they rarely had anybody from Washington to the White House. If it was, it was, you know, official dinner. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the only person that, I mean, I mean, they went to Valerie Jarrett's, but I don't know a single soul whose house they went to in eight years. Mm-hmm. So and That was problematic. I think that hurt the Democrats. And party. I think it was very hurtful because, yeah. I mean, you know, because I think the Democrats, a lot of the Democrats became, particularly on the Hill, became alienated. And in terms of this administration, I think that the people in this administration are not particularly, they've made it clear how they feel about Washington and the Washington establishment and the press, you know, enemies of the people. So, you know, there's not a great clamoring to invite them. I, I just don't ever see them. Somebody should bring them all together and try it out. Nice. Give them a lot of booze in a small place and, and mix well, it people. The president doesn't drink, so. Uh, you know what? I think that's a huge problem. <laughs> but moving on, feminism and the Me Too movement. And I remember years ago, you wrote this piece that really struck me about some of the failures of feminism. And you conceded, of course, we're all feminists in the sense that we want equality. And, right. And you were a pioneer right. and the first woman, and it was a newscaster, anchor. Yeah. anchor on CBS. And you've had horrible experiences with predators. And mm-hmm. could tell us a little bit about that. But on the other hand, the women's movement, the Me Too movement, it's going implicating all sorts of men, men who are merely crude or made a bad joke. Or, you know, but there's a difference between an Al Franken and a Harvey Weinstein. And sometimes it seems as if the Me Too movement isn't attending to that. And you've talked about that. I think that a very liberal friend of mine recently called it McCarthyism. It's a sexual McCarthyism. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, I think these things are cyclical. I think they go up and they go down, they go up and they go down. And I think that this is an unfortunate period we're going through where everyone, I mean, I had a really close friend, male friend of mine, who was very, very well known, come up to me a few months ago at a party. And he said, Sally, I need to ask you something seriously. I said, what? He said, have I ever done or said anything to offend you? We've worked together for 40, 50 years. Would that be Bob Woodward? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just guessing. (laughs) I'm not going to name names. But I said, oh, no, my God, how could you possibly think that? And another friend of mine said, you know, when this all started, I lie awake every night thinking, what have I said? What have I done? What have I said? Harvey Weinstein is different. I'll tell you one thing. I think that Kirsten Gillibrand has really hurt herself. She Because has. women, and Democratic women particularly, have really turned against her. Because, because we have this. sons. And we have well, husbands. of course. And, and you know, her, what she did to Harvey Weinstein was just unacceptable. No, you're talking about uh, what she I did mean, to uh, Al Franken. I mean, Al Franken was unacceptable, and I think it was unacceptable. And I think that a lot of the men, you know, on the Hill who sort of stood up behind her, she was like Joan of Arc, and said, well... Chuck Schumer, he has to go. I mean, it was ridiculous. They were scared. They were scared. They're scared to death of the of the movement. They don't know what to do. And I think, you know, so many of the bosses of these people are men, and they're scared. So they, a lot of them have overreacted. Now, 
Harvey Weinstein is a pig. I, you know, I've met him a number of times, but did I did he never... come on to you? Oh no, no. I mean, I you know hardly ever knew him. Charlie Rose was one of my closest friends for years and years and did years. You have any inkling? None. None. Well, Charlie was not married, you know. Well, I, I mean, so, I knew that at, he had. Every time I saw him, he was always seemingly trash, like very drunk. Well, times. I mean, Charlie drank, yeah. but I mean, he he was incredibly hardworking, you know, and he was a. I loved him. He was a wonderful guy. I am beyond shocked at what happened with him. And you're shocked by his behavior or yes. repercussions? No, 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 no. I think I think Charlie is up there with the bad guys, you know, in, yeah. in the way he behaved. And I feel really sorry for him because I think he's a very lonely person and he's got a lot of problems. So that was horrifying to me, the, the horrifying. Other people... Al Franken, I don't think Al Franken should have resigned. I think he should have said, okay, let's have a hearing and, you know, we'll... And the voters would I mean, what, and then let, the, let the voters decide. I mean, but, you know, one of the things Gillibrand said that just drove me crazy is, you know, there's no, basically, she was saying there's no difference between rape and, you know, sexual harassment. I mean, of course there is. I mean, it's like a medical examination where some people are really sick and some people are not really sick. I mean, they're... They're all different. Every Sniffle one of these cases is different. And, you know, you know Michael Oreskes, who was head of NPR, was a really good friend. Geraldine, his wife, is fantastic. I mean, I just feel so sorry for her. But he overstepped the line. He really did overstep the line. Tom Brokaw, I think, has gotten so badly hurt by this crazy woman who is, oh, I hope I don't get sued for saying that. I don't care if I'm sued. She no, was no, crazy. but I mean, she's a crazy woman, and she had this, he tried to kiss her, and she claims, and she said no, and he left, and that was it. And now, you know, his whole life, here's a guy who's dying of cancer, and his whole life that he's done so many great things for this country, and he's just all of this in shambles. And oh, so everybody who knows Tom Brokaw knows what a, a fantastic guy he is and what a decent person he is. And so, I mean, I think that, I think this woman was after her 15 minutes of fame. Yes. So, I, you know, I think each case you have to look at it and you have to see. There are people who made passes at me in the early days. Some of these are 27 years old. Do you think that I'm going to call out some guy who's now 80 years old who put his hand on my, my behind 30 years ago? And That was Strom Thurmond. Yes, it was Strom. <laughs> Good old Strom. But he not only did me, but my mother at the same time. And what did your mother say? We both went, oh! <laughs> and then she said, he came Strom, up. He you're came such up. a devil. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, he, he, my mother and I were at a buffet at this party, and Strom Thurmond came up and grabbed both of us by the behind. And, you know, and, and we both shrieked, and then my mother said, oh, Strom, you old devil, you know. But, you, but, but as someone so, who met her husband in the workplace, do you have a user's guide? Because... Because now they're, well, they're making okay, rules because the of problem. Me too, that you can't look, date in the I mean, workplace. Bob Woodward and Elsa Walsh met. I introduced them, and he hired her at the Washington Post. She was a Metro reporter, and he was the Metro editor. She's got a major harassment case. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, first of all, if yes, people are... How do are, we navigate that? But, but the point is us. that if Tell people us. are working together, if you're working in an environment... Where do you meet people? Unless you go online, it's very hard to meet people. Where you people. meet sociopaths. You meet people, okay, you meet people in your, the office setting. Then it's only natural. Ben and I met at the office. It's only natural that you're going to establish relationships. And I, I just think that I think people have really got to sort of 
back off on that and just realize that you're only human and you fall in love with somebody that, who's a coworker. You have to navigate it. I, I think it's not a good idea for the person who's in charge to be directly responsible. I mean, do you have to answer to that person? So somebody has to move and change or whatever. That has to be negotiated. But the idea of you can't have a relationship with a coworker is ridiculous. It's not realistic, for one thing. It's not realistic. And so what you're going to end up with is a lot of people who are lying and cheating and hiding. And, you know, that you don't want that kind of an environment. I think it's going to be like prohibition, where there's a mass movement and all of this momentum. For well, nobody knows. I mean, the point is that, you, you, you know, people are scared to flirt anymore. I, I went out to dinner the other night, and I, this guy I was having dinner with was a friend. And he said, oh, you look really great tonight. And he said, oh, I guess I shouldn't say that, you know, I mean, jokingly. But the fact is that this is not realistic. It's not realistic. And I think that people, the problem is really bad on college campuses, too, where women where there will, are genuine will go, go and, and sleep with a guy and then the next day scream rape. And I, I know that there's certain, I said, if I had a son in college, I would I told my one of my friends who has a son who will be a senior at Berkeley, and I said, if I were he, and I told Tom this, I would make out a form, permission slip, <laughs> yes. and have mimeograph it and have however many women you think you're going to sleep with, you just have a pile of them, and you take out the slip, and before anything happens, you get her to sign it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? but I think you should. I mean, that's how should, ridiculous You should it be is. able to tick a selection. I'll let you kiss me. Right, I'll let you right, touch right, me here. Right. No, there. but I mean. I would be frightened right yeah. now to have a son in college. I would be terrified. Absolutely And they terrified. are they are psychically annihilated, mm-hmm. and they become pariahs in an almost medieval sense of the I know. Sense of the I know. Okay, on last, the other hand, you know, I mean. On the other hand, on there the other are bad hand, things that happen. Let's not forget exactly. that there's another another side of this, which is that women are getting assaulted on campuses. And you were assaulted. I was assaulted, you know. I, Senator I, John Tower, no less. John Tower, yeah. But the fact is that, I mean, I think that it's the subtleties in the workplace. And I think that, I mean, I don't, I don't want to come across as somebody who says this is not a real thing, mm-hmm. that women don't right, no, get we assaulted. Need it. it's, because that is not what I'm saying. And I think it's really serious if people are using their power over coworkers who are under them for sexual favors or because of punishing them or firing them if they don't agree. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about here at all. And you make that uh, very clear that in the these book. These people should be really called out for it, really called out for it. And HR, there are places to go you can complain. And I know that women often will feel scared to complain. I mean, when Don Hewitt, who was the head of 60 Minutes, came on to me when he was in London, I was covering. He didn't just come on, he like he rushed into your bed, hotel yeah. room. And- uh, I didn't tell anybody and except my husband who said, I'm going to get on a plane right now and come over there and beat the, you know, what out of him. I said, no, no, please don't do that. Please don't do that. But I, I quit. And then I wrote about it. But well, he was a, the producer of 60 No, I understand. Nothing, nothing what happened. You wrote him. about it and he nothing was, happened? Nothing happened. Nothing. I mean, he was horrified, I guess, and mm-hmm. very upset. And then he later married a good friend of mine. It's always been terribly embarrassing because <laughs> she's a fabulous person. Have you? Did you go to their wedding? No. But we, <laughs> we, we ended up seeing them and having them for dinner on yeah, Long Island happen. and all that kind of thing. And I always felt bad. You know, I just want... I've but, wanted... but I mean, the thing is that I'd, I've seen, I've been there, and I know, and it was scary because I, if I had decided to stay at CBS, I would never have written about it and never told anybody because I would have been too scared. 
that I would lose my job because he said he wanted to put me on 60 Minutes and make me a star. My book was called We're Going to Make You a Star. So I have been there and I know how insidious it is and how horrible it is when someone who is over you takes advantage of you as a woman. And this has happened to me only a number of times, but, but enough so that I know. And I think that people are so much more aware of it now that it's, you know, one hopes that it is, will be less of a problem. And, and on some level, I think the Me Too movement is healthy because I think it's made a lot of the creeps back off, you yeah. know. And so I think that ultimately this is going to shake down. But I think that we've swung over too far to sort of always accusing men of guilty until proven innocent. And that isn't fair. And also because women will come on to men and then the men take them up on it. And, you know, in the old days, no meant, sometimes meant yes. And so now people say no means no, but does it really? And so I think that it's always, always going to be tricky. It's magic. Why do I tell myself these things that happen are all really true? This is the Femsplainers, and we're interviewing Sally Quinn, the author of Finding Magic. You just said a forbidden truth, and I'm going to ask you about another forbidden truth. One of the things that struck me in your wonderful book, Finding Magic, which I completely enjoyed and found riveting, you were madly in love with Ben Bradley, and then you found out he was in love with you, and it was very stirring, this, this love story. It's a magnificent love story, as well as a magic history. But then you had this fabulous job offer, not in Washington, not at the Post. You were going to go off to New York. You're madly in love, but you have this, the best job anyone ever, woman was ever to offer. And you were just crushed and heartbroken because you were so in love with Ben, but you had to go to this job. And something similar happened to me when I had a, a chance when I was a graduate student, a magnificent opportunity, but I was so madly in love with my Fred, who became my husband. I didn't care about, and my friends were angry at me because I just wanted to be with him. Yeah. Because love, as you said, yeah. and that attraction to a man was primary for me. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I can believe there are women who are not like me and not like you, but I suspect the majority are where the love of a wonderful man, it's primary, it's fundamental, and other things take a second, third place. You know, I think all, there's no prescription for this. And I think one of the great things about feminism, which to me means equality, one of the great things about being a feminist is that you, every woman has a right to choose what she wants to do. And so if she wants to give up her career and stay home and take care of her children and her husband, fine. If she wants to have a career and work really hard and go for the top and go for the gold, that's fine. That's her choice. And I think that's what we all care about. For me, Quinn, my son, and Ben came first before my career. But I have other friends whose career comes first. I don't judge them. And I don't want to be judged either. But I would I, like a women's movement that acknowledged sometimes that the majority of women, not all, you're absolutely right, 20% of women are high-powered, high-octane careerists. Yeah. You know, they want to be CEOs of Fortune 500. 
I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. You didn't. And I've seen the data over and over again. The Pew Research Foundation will, institute will ask people, what do you want? What is your ideal situation? And the vast majority of women, for them, love, marriage, children is primary. And then most of them want to work part-time. And they want to have wonderful careers, but part-time. It's not the same with men. So there's a difference. And I just wish we had a women's movement that could acknowledge that. Well, I think one of the most dangerous books that I've read in a long time is Lean In. Yes, uh, I agree. Well, Why do you think it's well because I think that Sheryl Sandberg wrote this book, and, and, and most of my friends, who all, by the way, have careers, all felt that it was so threatening to a woman, anyone. I mean, it was kind of like, there's something wrong with you if you don't. Because, you know, she had huge amounts of money and all kinds of staff and cooks and babysitters, and she was traveling you know, half the time, and a husband who was at home a lot of the time. But it was basically lean in. She'd come home, have dinner with the kids, and then go back to work. And it was lean in, go for it, go for the top of the job, do what you want. And it was, it was like, it was kind of an indictment of any woman who didn't do that, didn't want that, didn't want to live that. And because the book became so popular, I think there were an awful lot of women who felt inadequate because of that. And you know, I mean, my friend Elsa Walsh wrote a piece sort of refuting that in Outlook. It was a great piece. I it read. was the number one read piece in Outlook for the whole year. And it was basically saying, because Elsa stayed home to take care of their child. And Elsa was a writer. She, she was a post-reporter. Oh, she wrote a book. She, she wrote for she the had... New Yorker, right. you know, but she was, she was working at home. She writes screenplays and but it was that that was what she wanted to do. And she didn't, I don't think, I mean, Lean Ann basically is saying, this is what you have to do. And I don't think any woman has to do anything that she doesn't want to do. And I think she should do exactly what she wants to do. And, you know, I basically, when Ben was sick, well, when Quinn was sick, he was in and out of the hospital for 16 years. And, you know, Ben certainly. And you stopped working to take care I of your, stopped, you know, your I was son. writing novels at home. When I could, but I was, I lived in Children's Hospital for almost 16 years, and Ben was editor of the Washington Post. He did not quit his job. He did not spend his life taking care of Quinn. And that was what he wanted to do, and that's what I wanted to do. And I, if he had said, you know, you go ahead and go to work and write your books and, you know, travel and do whatever, and I'll quit my job as editor and I will stay home and I'll take Quinn to the doctor and to, I would have gone crazy because I wanted to do that. That's what you had I to had be to Queen. be with I mean, Queen. there's this, this, this visible and connection. So, but other women have different views, and they, you know. I don't know. It also they, comes down to the kid, too. Well, well but it comes what? down to what you want no. to do. Well, it does, but I, I, I have a very, my, our third child, 16, super feminist, a uh-huh. little walking feminist, and we encourage it, like, be mm-hmm. anything you want to be. When I founded a company a few years ago mm-hmm. and was working very hard at it, and I think she's old enough now. I can do this. She was so happy when I stopped. And I yeah. said, I said, B, I thought you were a feminist and you supported mommy doing these things. She goes, yeah, but I like it better. Now right. that you're here. I mean, well, kids are often the ones right. who are the true sexist, if you want to put it that way. Well, but they want their moms, too, in yeah. ways that they don't, you but know, I it's mean, different from their dads. The other thing is that when Ben got, when Ben had dementia and he was diagnosed eight years before he died, but the last two years, he was really, we finally came out of the closet and told people, and he was, he really needed round-the-clock care. I never hired anybody. We had a wonderful housekeeper 
But I took care of him. I slept in the bed with him every night. I got him dressed and I... You write about that really movingly. And and that's what I wanted to do. So I had a book contract and I just called him up and I said, either I'll give you the money back or you'll have to wait because I I just can't work during this time. I, I moved my office from the third floor down to this little pantry right next to the library where Ben would spend most of his day. They're sleeping on the sofa or sitting in front of the TV, and but somebody had to be with him because he would walk out of the house and get lost or whatever he needed. And some level, that was the happiest time of our marriage, even though he never didn't know who I was. I mean, he always knew who I was, and I think if he had gotten to the point where he didn't, that would have been really horrible. And we, I could still tease him and joke with him and flirt with him and Still, but he just didn't have any memory, and he had a hard time initiating conversation. But and people kept saying, "Why don't you put him in a home, or why don't you get a full time nurse?" That was impossible. But that's not what I wanted to yeah. do. Now, but if somebody wanted to do that, I yeah. mean, I have a lot of friends who, you know, who have a spouse who has Alzheimer's or whatever, and they do put them in homes and they do keep up their work. Well, or they can't cope because the however right. it manifests itself, but, they can't yeah. even. But, I mean, if that's what they want to do, if that's what makes them feel good, if that feels right for them, then I think that's what they should do. I mean, look at Sandra O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor quit the Supreme Court because... She wanted to take care of her husband. To to take care of her husband. And then, of course, he ended up not knowing who she was and going out to this home in Arizona and then falling in love with some other woman because he forgot he was married. Yeah, that can help. Um, (laughs) but, (laughs) But, I mean, the fact is that you have to do what you what feels right to you, and I just don't want oh. anybody dictating to me. I have to lean in or lean out. I have to give up my career, or I have to, you know, focus number one on my career. I mean, I the whole thing of women shouldn't work is insane. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all. I I don't know how I'd survive if I didn't have my work because it gives me enormous. A lot of meaning to my life, as I said. But well, um, I, I just think that in terms of feminism, that it should be, it's about equality, but it's also about freedom to choose. Well, I would also hope, and especially in the love story that you wrote about so movingly, that it's not just about the woman's choice or the man's choice about what he wants to do, but that love is such a powerful force that it's the right thing to do. That you're not just doing, you're not putting someone in a home or staying with them because it's what you want to do. It's because you're thinking about what is the best possible thing for them and how can I help them have that. I mean, if it's a matter, there are many people who simply can't cope with the levels Mm -hmm. of illness that people have that would be better treated Mm -hmm. somewhere else. But anyway, the the last question, because I know you have to go and it's been so wonderful to have you. I'm going to use your own language from the book, which is what do you plan to do with what remains of your one wild and precious life. <laughs> Don't you love that poem? I love, I love that. Oh, when I read that poem, I thought that has to be the lead of the book. So um, post Ben, yes, in this new. Well, line. it's been next week will be three years and nine months since mm-hmm. Ben died. So uh, you know, I wrote my book, and then I spent all last fall publicizing it, and then HBO had a documentary called The Newspaper Man about Ben, and I was involved in that, and. Then I publicized that, and then the movie The Post came out with Tom Hanks playing Ben and Meryl Streep. Who played you? I wasn't in it. Oh, I thought no, Ben. No, 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 it wasn't me because Ben and I. His marriage was breaking up at that time, and he and I got together shortly after that. And so I was busy, sort of talking about that and promoting that, and then you know I sort of 
collapsed at Christmas time. And then I do spend a lot of time with my son, Quinn, who is learning disabled. He's just getting married, but he has a website for young adults with learning disabilities. And so I'm on the board. So I do spend a lot of time with the National Center for Learning Disabilities and working with him on his website. And I'm working on another memoir, a Washington memoir this time. Because I didn't write that much about Washington in no. the book. No, because no. this is a whole different thing. I'm now working with the person who worked with Kay Graham on her Washington memoir. We're going around interviewing a lot of people, which has been fun. And I'm writing a novel, a love story. It has nothing to do with Washington. And I'm, I'm doing stuff for Washington Post Live and, mm-hmm. you know, just writing. I had a piece in the Post op-ed about the Dalai Lama and the Rohingyas last week, and I've got a piece coming out in Politico this week. And so, you know, I, I'm just, I'm busy all the time, and I still have people over for dinner. I mm-hmm. still love entertaining, and I would love to have somebody else in my life. You know, mm-hmm. I would love to find Would someone. you really, you really, because I think as a widow of a certain age, I was thinking about the other night, what I would like in my life, and I'm not a lesbian, <laughs> I'm, to- I'm so heterosexual, but maybe like another woman. Because women, <laughs> women are less of a burden. In the- Go for it, Christina. <laughs> I know, no, not no sex. There will be no sex. I'll have a young boyfriend for that. No, uh, but just for living. Uh-huh. Don't you think it's easier to live with a woman? Well, you uh, once had a lesbian. No, no. Uh, I have a very best, friend, best friend, our best friend, and we once rented a house together in in the Eastern Shore. Mm-hmm. Our husbands were away, and we had small children at that point. And it was so wonderful living with another woman. You'd come down, the counters somebody, were wiped, yeah. somebody had put the coffee on, and we began to call each other, you know, mummy so-and-so and mummy so-and-so. But I don't think I could actually, that would not be my life plan if I... Well, I last summer rented a house with another couple on Martha's Vineyard, and she's my closest friend, and they live in Boston. And so her husband, who's a great guy, we had the house for a month, and he came out for one weekend and then came out for 10 days. And the rest of the time, we were alone. And it was just fantastic. Paradise. I loved being with her. But then when her husband came, there I was. And I was, you know, yeah, then you, then you'd I, wanted, wanted, I felt want lonely. Somebody. Yeah, you know? I agree. And I agree. I just felt lonely. And I, I want somebody to love. And I want somebody, I need to be held, you know. I need to have somebody who will love me and cherish me. And, and I want what I had with Ben. So... I'll find it. <laughs> I'll find my magic. All right. Yes, maybe conjure, conjure yes. it up. Do you? Do you, is it in the tea leaves? Is it in the tarot I think card? she will find it. I don't want her to read my palm because I'm frightened. Yeah. But will you let her read your palm? No. You have a you have a darling palm. You have a she, cute. Sally is, has to leave. We don't want our palm just, 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 just terrified. Okay, just you, not me, because she's lovely and perfect. Mine's like barbed wire. Everybody's is like barbed. It's oh. like chain fences. No. No. Okay. We'll do it later. <laughs> Let me continue. All right. Well, thank you, Sally, so much. The book is Finding Magic, a love story by Sally Quinn. Buy it and read it. And just it's just, it's so it's gossipy, too, and fun. When in my heart I know the magic is my love for you. So we had a lot of social media activity on both the modeling episode we did with Sarah Ziff 
and the atrocities and the lack of Me Too movement going on in the modeling industry. And we also had some actually really nice outreach from the interview we did with my husband, David Frum, about marriage. So should we just read a few of the responses that we got? And some of you had questions, and we can go through those. One of the interesting things that happened on Twitter with the Sarah Ziff episode was there are a lot of people who are very sympathetic to the problems that models have. And as we documented them, quite horrendous, with no labor protection, nothing, many involving underage girls. But there was a lot of anger and just kind of sort of the attitude, well, if you're pretty and get into a business of modeling, you deserve you ask for it. You ask for it. People are irritated with physically perfect Paragons of beauty. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of the womp womp syndrome. It's but, kind of annoying. Let's but, face it. But, I mean, not annoying, but <laughs> ah, no, how but, can they just take it for granted? They're so beautiful and then they have all these problems. No, if you're beautiful, people assume everything is perfect. Well, it's not. And we showed that in the model thing, but people don't right. get that message. And so then I had one woman on Twitter who goes under the Twitter handle of having said that. She wrote in response to some of these comments, well, I've done it. It's exactly right. It's not glamorous. And so I said, well, tell us some of your stories. So she did. So, I mean, she did like this eight-part Twitter answers, but I'll read you a couple of them. She said, one of them was, right before I went to New York City for a job, my agent had us practice being on camera for a commercial competition. We had to make up our own ad. I stood up to take my turn. Agent said, turn around for me. So I pirouette. She looks me up and down, shaking her head. From now on, until we go to New York, don't eat anything. If not, don't bother going at all. She might have been overweight, no? Yeah, but overweight by crazy person standards. No, by the stat note, not defending it. But models that we see in magazines, it's a fantasy. It's a projection. As my friend Camille Polly said, it's the history of art. It's, you know, exalting. Right, but also, as we discovered and learned from Sarah, that this incredible pressure to be insanely thin. I, I agree. Well, here's another. Here's another no, it doesn't example. have to be that way because there are. And I think we're in an era now where aren't people beginning to enjoy like more athletic bodies? I think, I and think we, it's more rounded, large behinds. I think oh, yeah. With, it's, it's, yeah. So, so not Kim Zaftig, Kardashian. We would never call it Zaftig. But it was back in this, when I was growing up, it was Twiggy. And I kind of like that because at that time. You know, right. Well, we're back to Twiggy. But, I like to it. But, but I could do that in the th- 60s. This is the point, that these girls are just having comments made on their bodies all the time. Well, you could do it more nicely, like, don't eat anything. To- well, here's another example. No, they do treat them as if they're just products in an assembly line. Right. So she said another time they were waiting inside a hotel. Different agents were sitting at tables in a hallway. We could show our portfolios to agents from all over the world. And when I got to the table from Japan... The man said he liked my look and said, you look great now, but do I know if we pay to bring you to Japan, you won't develop thunder thighs? <laughs> anyway, well, but, but she does say, look. That's uh, pretty funny. And, and you know what? I wouldn't want to look at thunder thighs because I've got them. I don't want to look at you them. You are such an enabler of these guys. I'm an enabler of that. The last one she said, there was some event and at the end of the trip, a party was thrown at the old Studio 54 Cameras were there interviewing people, and upstairs there were little booths filled with professional models. Most of them were doing cocaine. They were all stick bodies. We were all basically starving ourselves. My idea of lunch then was a few tomato slices and Perrier water. Oh, I miss those days. Christina! No, it was a diet. All right, your turn. 
We have a letter, someone who was pleasantly surprised about our podcast, and it so clearly mirrored their own experiences. They were from an evangelical church, and they oppose or question the idea that one must be celibate because they think the rules were based on 14 and 15-year-olds, where, yes, celibacy is appropriate, but now people are single into their 20s and 30s. And they said, I'm not saying the church should embrace loose morals, but shouldn't they acknowledge that there are real issues? Well, what do we think about that? I mean, 14s and 15-year-olds, thats I'm not even going to talk about that, but when you're 18 and you must be celibate, I just don't get that. But I'm a hippie from the 60s. You explain. You're from the uptight no, I th- generation. I think we're... <laughs> <laughs> the Gen X. We were the you're Alex. The Gen, uh, the yeah, I, I am yeah, a baby true. boomer. You're the, Gen- the reaction minute, to the, the Gen- baby boomers. Yeah, but the Gen Xers were slackers. No, no. I think we, there was a, the first contingent were real high achievers and really trying to and celibate. Offset. No, no, not celibate. <laughs> you look so. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But tell me about uh, that. No, I think this is a, a this is a general problem. It doesn't just haunt the church. We're all trying to figure out. Somewhere, we're teaching your daughters or teaching your sons when it's appropriate and right to have sex. And the church, as this listener is saying, is saying, just like, never till you're married. And that's not realistic. But never till you're 30, if that's when you get married, or never till you're 25. I actually think it's strange not to have had sexual experience before you get married. Because sex is so important a part of marriage and love, that you need to understand what you like and want in a partner, or at least even if you have sex with the person you're going to marry before marriage, nobody wants that Victorian surprise on the wedding night, you know? (laughs) And and I think, so, so I think understanding that sex, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, sex shouldn't be the entry level of a relationship. It has to be the summit of intimacy. And when you're mature enough to understand what that is. So I think trying to teach a certain amount of caution and being open about the importance of sex to a good relationship, the importance of sex to marriage, and not just sex as a pastime or something you just do casually. So you're ruling out like a few one-night stands before you get married? (laughs) I mean, just <laughs> really not anything. I'm ecstatic not encounters with anything. strangers? No. Okay. But trying to put sex in the context of relationships and love is something that we don't seem to do so often. We seem to talk so much about birth control and permission and... Consent forms. Consent form. And, and we've made it so clinical or, or nothing. It's or, just or something you surrounded do. surrounded by all of these prohibitions and fears. And I mean, I don't disease. want it to become recreational and just continuous with physical exercise. It does need to be enchanted and set off and romantic. That doesn't mean it can't be a one-night stand with a... Okay, Christina, we're... we're I'm not having one-night stand. Your we're not... Ta- I'm not, it's not my past. It is, <laughs> n- I'm talking about your generation. <laughs> moving on. Yeah, moving on. Uh, here's a nice one we got about the marriage and love one says, I was intrigued, dismayed by your comments about avoiding romantic entanglements with anyone who has had a really bad relationship with a parent. My mother and I never got along very well. Dad was aces and trumps all the way. Even as a teenager, he was one of my favorite people to talk to. I'm barely a month younger than your husband, my husband, David, who's 58. 
and have never been married, not for wanting to be married, but now I wonder if I'm just constitutionally unsuited for wedded bliss. Oh, I didn't mean to say that you can't have a good relationship. I, I mean, I did say to my sons, before you marry someone, make sure she was nice to her mother. But if she had an impossible mother, being nice to her father is good enough for me. Yeah, I, I would say, I think you're right. This listener is totally right. Who knows? Because there could be crazy mothers. Right, or crazy parents, or the, you just don't know the difficulties. I think the more important thing is how they handle their relationships with their parents. Yes. That if they have had a very difficult relationship, is that something they've gotten over? Is it something they've learned from? Are they going to bring that bad relationship into their marriage, or is it something they've learned from, want to do differently? I think everything is what self-knowledge somebody brings to the relationship, and can they get over these difficult pasts? Yeah, but you, you, you're sounding like a college admissions officer. Like, what experiences do you have? How did you, do people actually, are we overthinking intimacy? Well, as David said on the podcast, you know, that when you really decide you're in love, you're in no condition to sign even a cell phone contract. <laughs> so, yeah, so no, that's important. But I think the relationships, I mean, when so you my get married, said- you are entering into the larger family, and then that's when the larger family and the dynamics become important. I like my mother's advice, and she told me, never marry a man until you go to the beach, we were from California, and lose his car keys in the sand and see how he reacts. <laughs> <laughs> And I actually almost did something. I, I, I locked, we had a rented car, and I locked the keys in the trunk. You know, it was a terrible predicament, and we were in California, and Fred behaved very well. He <laughs> laughed, and he just thought I was inexplicable. Well, how did they react to the trivial thing? Yes, there's so, there's so many tests we could do, but I think it is important to understand, you know, if you come from a divorce background, it doesn't mark you, but how do you plan to deal with it going forward? That would be the only thing I would say. I'm only going to say that I hope that younger people who are listening to this think about marrying younger before things get complicated and before you become set in your ways and impossible. Because if you marry younger, you can have a lot of kids. That's my one regret is that I didn't have five kids. All right. You have to marry young for that. You say that every episode you have. I know. All right. All right. I'm taking it back. (laughs) No, you don't have to take it back. No, but I would like right now to have more grandchildren. Well, that's true. All right. Well, thank you. That's all we'll deal with for now. And keep reaching out to us. We really love hearing from you. You can reach out to us. Ideally, what helps us most is if you leave a comment on iTunes. And if that's too bothersome, you can reach out to contact at femsplainers.com or you can go to Facebook at Femsplainers or Twitter at Femsplainers. We read everything. We try to reply to everything to the best of our ability. And we love reading and talking about your comments. So thanks. Thanks for listening to Femsplainers. Femsplainers.